Are you underutilizing one of the most powerful restaurant marketing tools on the planet? What do 92 million monthly Yelp searchers see when they land on your page? Is your content accurate and attention grabbing? Are you using every conversion tool possible to set yourself apart? Yelp is here to help. Go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to sign up for a one-on-one with a specialist that will review your Yelp page and share tips to help you stand out. Again, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to supercharge your Yelp page today. Now here we go. That idea that I need a thousand of me's, that's the most ignorant thing to say. You don't. And when I started to understand that and started to actually ask my staff, because they were experts just like me. So I started asking them questions and giving them the tools they needed to succeed. And that's when we really just started to get creative and really started to build these beautiful efficiencies. And that's when things got really cool. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Hey, it's Josh. I'm starting a new case study group this month, and I'm looking for a few specific people. So, if you're a restaurant owner or operator that's currently doing $50,000 per month in sales, have the desire and the bandwidth to increase your sales by 10 to 20%, and have two to three hours per week to work on these strategies, I would love to help you scale up by Christmas. Go to restaurantcasestudy.com and sign up to learn more. Again, that's restaurantcasestudy.com. Nick Brun calls himself a chef, but I'd call him a culinary entrepreneur. The reason being is that he's as interested in the business of food as he is in cooking it. In today's far-reaching conversation, we cover the path he took to master the business of hospitality, how he's applied those lessons to build multi-million dollar F&B businesses, and how he's sharing those lessons with the world. I literally grew up in a household that, you're from Louisiana, everyone I knew could cook. My dad could cook, my mom could cook, all my grandparents could cook, and basically everything was based around food my entire life and i never even thought about being a chef at that time but it was just food was very important to us in louisiana and you know to be honest i was able to cook really well at a young age beyond even not even working in a kitchen and then i just you know it was my first job i started at the age of 14 back then we could still work at that age i was what bussing tables and frying tortilla chips at a tex-mex restaurant and somehow that addicted me. I think it was all the, the staff and all that, and the staff parties and all that kind of stuff that started to kind of become a part of the lifestyle, right? And from there, I just started growing and growing and growing. And I got that high volume, those high volume jobs in, like the Georges type stuff in Louisiana. And filling five fryers filled with catfish every Friday to flipping burgers and all that stuff. Got my speed down and Next came the fine dining side of things, and that just really kind of got me obsessed, man. And from there, I couldn't get away. But what was the path to ownership? Because there are a lot of people that get into it. They're super passionate about it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they want to own and operate their own restaurant or run a food-focused business. Well, you know, I've been a, I guess, a small-time entrepreneur since I was in high school, right? I started my first little company, I think my sophomore, junior year of high school, 
and we were doing all the parties, you know, all the proms and all that stuff for schools and weddings. And we were DJs, right? And so I've just always been entrepreneurial. My dad had his own business. So I think that kind of stuck with my brother and I because he owns his own business now as well. And so I've just always kind of had that drive, probably a little bit of hard headedness, thinking that I knew a little bit more than everybody back then as well, perhaps, <laughs> which was a bad thing that I found out later. But regardless, I just always had that drive to do my own thing. And what really made it happen is I'd never been fired in my life. I was a very hard worker, a very good worker, show up on time no matter what, even throughout college. And I moved out to Los Angeles. I had a complete change in life. And I came out here and I landed a huge job for a catering company. And we were catering like the highest level events you could imagine. And I spent three months, probably five days a week catering parties. It was just this crazy experience. And I dedicated myself to it. And then the holidays came. And at the time, I had a long distance girlfriend who's now my wife who lived across the country, right? And so she had just graduated college. And so I flew out to New York and drove her out here. And when I got back, there was a new chef in my kitchen. It didn't really make much sense to me. So I walked into the office and probably lost my mind a little more than I should have and probably could have been a little more collected there. Uh, but I was young and very upset. And he didn't have a good reason to do that because I did a damn good job. I saw the reviews, right? And everyone loved working for me. So I told him I was going to take over his business, which was an absolute joke because he was a $12 million caterer, been there for 17 years in Los Angeles and was next level. And I was a child who had a ton to learn, but it immediately set a fire underneath me, man. And I went for it a hundred percent. I started a little catering biz, started getting these side jobs. Back then, if you don't have overhead, if you don't have a kitchen, you're cooking. I'm cooking out of my four burner gas range out of my apartment, right? One event a month. It's like, holy crap, we got some money coming through the door, right? So I dove in, man. And that just led to all sorts of other things. And we were able to build a really great company. But there was a clear inflection point. And you and I have talked about this privately before, where the business was able to scale massively. Yeah. And it went absolutely. from being a very successful million dollar company to a multi-million dollar company overnight would be overstating it, but pretty quickly. What was that change? Well, I think for us to even go back to the beginning, right off the bat, my first mistake when I started that catered, my first company was I partnered with another chef. That term, too many chefs in the kitchen, that's there for a reason. And we were both very creative chefs at the time. None of us knew anything about really marketing sales, front of house, how to run a business, accounting, finance, so on and so forth, right? And we just butted heads. We never really got much accomplished and we weren't able to grow because we didn't know marketing and sales, right? So that split up. So my first big step to truly growing, to scaling to a million bucks was finding the right partner. And I realized that I needed to find the yin to my yang, right? So I partnered with a full-time marketing guy who had nothing to do with catering and didn't barely catered an event his entire life, right? And he'd come from the mortgage industry. Uh, it was 2007 when that whole thing collapsed, right? But he was really focused on building digital marketing and beautiful websites. And in 2007, caterers still weren't on the web. So we were, at least they weren't the bit, you know, not too many were, right? And so we were really able to just, we hit the web, we started writing our blog, we found our niche, which is eco caters, right? We really focused on local organic food. So we had this thing to talk about and we just kept talking about it, man. And that SEO and that pay-per-click scaled us to a million bucks in a year and a half. And that's pretty crazy when you start a business with 2,200 bucks, right? 
But then we stuck there for eight or nine years, man. And there was a bunch of mistakes along the way. We thought we had made it two years in, invested in a restaurant, which moved me down to San Diego and opened up a restaurant, which took me away from my LA branch, which was actually skyrocketing at the time. And then it plateaued and kind of fell down a little bit, right? Because I thought we had it all dialed in. But we didn't. The restaurant was a success and it was a learning thing. But if I would have stayed with catering, you know, it probably would have done better in LA. And so I learned my lesson there and I got that focused on catering. And then we just realized we were relying on too many other people to scale our business. Every time we think we take a step forward, a venue of ours would get a new manager in that had friends that were caterers and we'd never get gigs there. No matter if we were the number one caterer at that place, have five-star reviews, they loved us. New management come in, we're done. We're out of there. Lose a quarter million bucks in business, right? And you got to go find that again. So it was just like this back and forth, back and forth. And it was just an absolute nightmare, man. So we decided to take all of that to our own hands. Like we needed to control our business a little bit more rather than rely on other people. So the first step was we wanted to build our own venues, be a part of our own venues, right? So we did. I literally took a 50-year-old parking lot behind a hotel, threw up a 12-foot redwood fence, succulent walls, and I actually built the darn thing with two of my buds. My, one of my business partners, one of my good buds, I actually went to architecture school. So we designed this beautiful thing, dropped in a shipping container, and we started getting these exclusive events where we didn't have to actually market for it. It was like, holy cow, and it's mine. Nobody can take it from me. Then we got other people to start to realize, you know, managers of other venues that they needed someone like us to really take care of their space because when you got 50 caterers coming through it can get bad so that was a really great step to really start to take command of our own revenue and not have to rely on anyone else and then the number one thing that 5x our business like like it's not overnight but pretty much i mean two years right was we entered the corporate world and the only way we were able to do that was by asking questions to our customers, right? And really getting out there. I got on LinkedIn. I invited any corporation that would come to my kitchen for a free tasting so I could talk with them about their events. They didn't want to talk about events. They had lunch problems, right? And so I said, great, how can I solve those problems? And I started working on it. And we landed our first client pretty quickly. And from there, we got great reviews and really started to dial in the service and why and what and how. And the corporate catering, those consistent contracts, right? The Monday through Friday stuff. I'm booked now January through February, all those slow periods, you know, November, January's and February's when you're dead in catering. I had consistent work, right? We were serving a thousand meals a day just in San Diego. So that was something that really transformed our business on so many levels because it allowed us to have the funds to hire the right people, have the funds to install the right systems and just now, again, that consistent revenue and that contracted revenue that was guaranteed that just really took some weight off of my shoulders as a CEO. Well, and that's what we're all looking for, right? It's that consistent revenue. That is what's lacking is that I can remember talking with a friend about it and they were like, you know, what's the hardest part of the industry? And I said, honestly, like the weather, if it rains on a Saturday night, it's going to cost me $15,000. Like on what planet does a business hinge itself on rain, on pleasant weather? And so it's, you're less dependent on these external conditions that you have no control over if you're able to find these ancillary revenue streams. And it's, it's one of the reasons I was excited to have you on the show. It's one of the things I think you did incredibly well. And I also think it's one of the things that restaurateurs listening could adopt as well. It's really easy to offer tastings. And 
for anyone that was in the same tiers of dining as me, you weren't open in the afternoon. So you could run a small scale catering operation out of the kitchen because you're not open and you could cater it to exactly who your customers are and repurpose that prep. Well, people just got to understand that your whole goal is really to get your kitchen running 24 hours. Right. It's how much money can you make per square foot or in the restaurant world? How many, you know, some people go by seat. Right. But for me, it's per square foot. Then I know whether I even need to have seats. Right. If I'm making more money per square foot in my kitchen than I am per seat in my dining room, maybe you should start delivering more. Right. So I think people don't really take that time to really understand what they're trying to do. I mean, you've got to get that kitchen working 24 hours. You sound savvy, but it's, you do. You sound really, really savvy. And- Everything that you're talking about isn't an education that we get from within the industry. A lot of these ideas come from outside the industry. You and I are both members of the Entrepreneurs Organization, which is how we met. And it's something that we've both found massively beneficial. In your own words, can you explain what a peer organization is and what the benefits to it are? especially for us in such a niche industry? A hundred percent. Well, I mean, anybody who asks me what some anybody should do when they start their business, my first bit of advice is you don't know shit. You need to find yourself some peers. You need to find a mentor who can really help you. The peer group that we're involved in, and I guess any of them out there, right? As long as you have someone you're meeting with on a monthly basis or even bi-monthly basis to collect information, and you're willing to go in there and listen, and ask questions, not go in there and answer questions. Because, you know, I've been a chef for basically my whole life. Most of us chefs, all we know how to do is answer questions. We've been asked questions all day, every day, our whole life, right? And so we always have to come up with these answers. And for me, I never joined a fraternity. I never joined these periods. What are these guys? What are they? I never really had a mentor. You know, I read cookbooks and I call these cookbook chefs my mentors because I had it. I knew everything. And as soon as I realized, and I dropped the ego, Ego Free Leadership's a great book. As soon as I dropped the ego and started asking questions to my staff and just started to take that step back and really hop in with these other entrepreneurs, man, you realize that I don't care if you're a catering company or a $20 million marketing firm or a $100 million law firm, we all have the same problems. And when you have these next level people sharing their problems with you and their experiences with you. It's life and business hacking at its finest. You can't take away what that does and how it accelerates you in your business because it's going to take you years to learn. It took me a decade to learn some of the things that I've learned within business. And and I'm sure I've got another decade to learn more. But over that last three years, I was able to accelerate because I listened and I learned from my peers. So I would strongly suggest everyone <laughs> in this industry, if you are an owner, no matter what level, get out there, start having conversations with other entrepreneurs and business people figure out the problems they've had, figure out how they solved them within their business. And I guarantee you, you'll learn some ideas there. To get granular, I'm curious to know, because I can list a few off the top of my head. What are specific lessons you've learned from outside of our industry that you were able to bring into your day-to-day operations? My favorite is EOS, man, right off the bat. I mean, Traction, I read the book Traction. One of my peers was actually coaching it as well. Once I read that book, There's so many moving parts, man. There's just so much in our industry. There's no way you can keep it all on your brain. And I had uh, one of these guys look at me and they go, man, you've got 350 things plus on your brain. There's no way you can make the right decisions. You could see the way my eyes were blinking. It's like, you got too much, man. And basically, when you 
start to hop into these systems, EOS, or no matter what it is, but you install an actual system into your business and a way to track things, KPIs, and start to really understand the level 10s every week. We started to the second, ended to the second. That got my managers in the groove for the week of making sure that they were on time, making sure the staff was on time in the right momentum, getting that momentum going, right? Any problem was solved right there every week rather than floating through my business. As soon as we started doing EOS, problems that have been in my business for five, seven years just started to disappear like that because as C-level individuals, we were able to just conquer them and have those conversations. So right off the bat, EOS was tremendous. And then I've said it a few times already, but I'll say it again. The idea that I was the massive clog within my business, it was actually me. That idea that I need a thousand of me's, that's the most ignorant thing to say. Uh, you don't. Actually, you need the exact opposite of you. And when I started to understand that and started to actually ask my staff, because they were experts just like me within my business. Some of these guys have been working for me for nine, seven, eight, nine, ten years, right? They were extreme experts. They've been running LA without me there. I didn't even know what the hell was going on up there, barely, right? So I started asking them questions and giving them the tools they needed to succeed. And that's when we really just started to get creative and really started to just build these beautiful efficiencies and just that's when things got really cool. And so for everyone listening that would say, I don't have the time to do that. I don't have the money to invest in those people. What would you say? You don't have the money to not invest in those people. And to be honest, you don't have to join like a entrepreneur's organization, which to me, I mean, what is it? 500 bucks a week, a month for us. I mean, for me, that's a no brainer, but you don't have to go that pricey. There's plenty out there and you can work your way up the ladder. And no matter what, when you get out there and you start connecting with peers, you're building your network. You're going to start to get more business. That was, I mean, business just started flying my way, right? I ended up sponsoring EO. And I mean, I think EO's just bringing us just a quarter million bucks in business just for members every year, right? So get out there and beyond the education, you just work your way up the smaller networking groups till you hit that half a million bucks or a million bucks and come join EO or, or any other network group that's in your area that's really connective and has the right people and the right way to talk. I don't like networking groups where they tell you what to do. I've been a part of a few where I've talked to somebody and I told them about my problem and they tell me what I should do. That doesn't really make sense. If you're not a caterer, you don't actually know shit about my business. So you can't tell me what to do if you're a lawyer, but you can tell me your experience and what happened to you and maybe that can work for me, right? So I think you need to be careful with that as well because some of these places, you start to get those things where you should do this and you should do that. I'd be pretty weary of that. You're still actively involved in food and beverage, but you're also turning your attention to helping the industry at large rebound from the pandemic. Can you talk to me about what those efforts are and how they're manifesting? Yeah, man. Well, I mean, the pandemic hit us all hard, right? And God, it, it took me six months of just hitting every emotion you can imagine before I realized what I needed to do. And it was just kind of a strange time in life. I had just built my business to the biggest it had been. 2020 was about to be an absolutely insane year for us. And when it all kind of came crashing down, it was really, it was just like this reflective, just like, what am I going, like, what am I, my family I've got in, like, what am I going to do to take care of all this? How am I going to rebuild this? And what I realized, man, is what I've learned over the last 22 years, I'm extremely passionate about this industry. And as we've everyone been here and I get out there as much as possible to learn. I've read entrepreneurial books all the time. I'm just obsessed with it. 
And I just realized that I probably had more to offer. I mean, to be honest, I had just labeled myself president, was about to step out and kind of start doing some of these things. But this allowed me to really jump into like creating some courses for people, as well as really designing some things that I found throughout the last 20 years of my career that really changed everything. Like these little tiny efficiencies. Like I said, we started using virtual kitchen assistants, right? VAs in the culinary world, which most people don't think about, right? I just kind of started thinking about that more and more. I was like, man, maybe I can actually help people rebuild their businesses, right? Maybe I can help people who already have businesses scale, who had the same problems I had, who are at that million bucks and they just really want to graduate to the next level for their families. They've been grinding for so long, like you and I have, spend that 60, 70 hours a week and it's for peanuts, right? I really wanted to show those people like how to turn those peanuts into a, a new house and a lifestyle that actually fit and a family life, right? Because what I've found is when I dove into that, it helped my brain out. It helped me become a better owner. It helped me talk to my staff better to really work on that work-life balance. So I dove in 100% and uh, started working on courses through all different levels of the industry. We're mainly starting with catering. Then we're going to, uh, oh, sorry, we got personal chef in there. We got catering because that's how I kind of graduated to being a caterer as well. I started getting some of the celebs in there, catering, corporate catering, and ghost kitchens. Those are going to be our first few courses. And we also launched a ghost kitchen downtown San Diego over this time, which is it's wildly successful since the reopening, right? So I really wanted to start to share some of that information to see if I could help people out and help people rebuild after this collapse of our industry. So I've been on the other side of the coin. And I've listened to conversations like this and I've immediately leaned into like that special fallacy, right? Like you don't know me. My business is special. My industry is special. My location is special. And the traditional rules of business and life and all of this, they just don't apply to me. And I would argue that that is an ideology that has permeated the industry. I've talked to people that say, you'll never net more than 5%. You can't. Like, this isn't an industry where that ever happens. And then, you know, I've interviewed like 100 plus people that all make more than that. And so it does, maybe not for this guy, but for a lot of people that want it, it's possible. And so I guess my question is, one, are there super special restaurants and catering operations out there that simply can't make money? Or are there universal principles, right, that'll work for everybody? Yeah, man. Ego gets in the way of all of us, right? There's definitely universal principles that can save you money and make you more efficient. And I will say, I understand that there are people in the catering world and even in the restaurant world that created it as a lifestyle business. They don't want to expand to five, 10 million bucks. They don't want to go multi-city. They love their life. They love their jobs. That's fine, man. That is freaking, actually, that's amazing. And I wish I could be that person, to be completely honest. But anyone who has the idea that we can't do this, your neighbor's doing. It's being done, right? And there's definite principles. There's definite tools you can use that can absolutely change the game. And it starts first, again, with that owner and him or her actually taking that step back and figuring out what's wrong with their business. 95% of the time, it's them and marketing and sales, <laughs> right? And those are problems that are they're not easy to solve. I'm not going to lie. They're not easy to solve. But to be honest, it just takes time and a small amount of money. 
People think you have to come on with a hundred grand a month to start competing in pay-per-click. And it's just not the case. You just have to understand how to collect that data, right? How to create your first offer, how to truly create an offer that people are attracted to one, two, or three of them, put them out there and collect that data and see which one's working and which one's not. And in the ones that's working, multiply the money towards there, right? But most people just throw shit at a wall and see if it sticks, right? We don't really track this data. And if we do, it takes us so much time and energy to track the data. We don't, we don't have the time to even do anything with it. Same thing with our food and labor costs, right? And so, like I said, there's definitely efficiencies. There's definite tools, uh, software, and even individuals now that you can hire that can speed up your process and make you efficient beyond belief. And yeah, you think, oh man, that costs me 250 bucks a month. Well, the employee that runs it costs you $4,500 a month. So if you don't have to have that employee now because you got a software or system that's in place and you got one less person and your chef got his head on his shoulders and is more organized now getting out of the kitchen, not running out like a crazy person, what is that worth? That's not only is it saving you your brain, but it's definitely saving you money, right? And once you start to scale, there's definite tools to lower that food cost, lower that labor cost, right? Because obviously you're going to start buying in bulk. Then you got to start to have those neg- negotiation talks, right? Those are for me. And that's what no one knows about in this industry. Have you ever been taught negotiation, Josh? No, but I learned it over time. We learned it by school of hard knocks, right? Yeah, absolutely. After finding out what my neighbors were paying, I was like, what the heck? Well, for me, it's like there's real tactics to negotiation, setting anchors. And also, I can't believe how many restaurants I've talked to. I'm talking to people daily now who don't understand their food cost. They don't have a food costing template. I mean, that's just amazing to me. So again, yeah, there are definite tools, singular tools that can change everything about your business. It can unload things off your brain. They can be held somewhere where you know they're safe and you can come back to them and just conquer whenever you need to throughout your day. And I think those are important things to find nowadays. Galley Solutions, great back of house software. Toast, what they're doing this day and age for the front of house. I mean, there's beautiful efficiencies in there. You just have to use them. And I want to get super actionable for a minute. And I'd love for you to describe one, two, three things that the people listening should do today to improve their restaurants or their catering operations in their lives. Okay. First and foremost, with catering, I think you need to understand whether you are a B2B or a B2C business. If you are selling business to business, and what I have found in my last 20 years of doing this is that you are a relationship-driven business. You need to get to peer groups. You need to go out to events. You need to give away things at fundraisers and things like this and go to them and network. And you need to build your network within your city of corporations, right? Relationship marketing is what's going to sell $100,000 monthly contracts, $50,000 monthly contracts, okay? Most of those people aren't going to come click on your website, right? So B2B for me has been relationship marketing. Get to know the CEO, get to know the manager. They're going to want to put you in. When it comes to weddings and just special private events, of course, all these people are going to to Google, right? So you're a lead gen business. It's a whole different thing. You're not going to go out and try and meet a bunch of people who are having weddings. It's a waste of your time. They're only coming to you once. You're never going to see them again. Very rare. I think I've had two clients that consistently do catering with me after their wedding because most people don't ever throw another event like that in their life, right? So 
really take that step back and understand where your focus is, where it needs to be. And if it's both, separate your marketing, understand what you're trying to do within them. So recognize who you are as a business and who you're trying to target. Next, I would strongly suggest taking a step back and talking with your C-level staff about what they truly need to succeed within your business. What is holding them back? What are they best at and do daily, right? What are they worst at and do daily? What do they not get accomplished because of the stuff that they're worst at? You're going to find most of your chefs are going to say, I hate looking at computers at any extent. So how do we solve that problem, right? You're going to find your front of houses or your salespeople are overloaded with crappy leads. So how do we solve that problem? So get in your staff, ask them questions. They're dealing with it more than you are. You're getting secondary information by the time it gets to you. So get some information from your staff, ask them, ask them those true questions. We actually have a questionnaire with virtual kitchen assistant that literally changed my business. You get it out. I found so many holes in so many places within my business that I was able to fix like that and make my chefs extremely happy. Now they don't even look at a computer. They're in the kitchen cooking what they want to do and chiefing the kitchen because we're chefs. That's what we do, right? So that's a really important step. Number three, this was actually really funny a decade into business. I didn't have a business model. And I remember my peers, I was just having all these problems, just going back and forth and they asked me all these questions I didn't know the answer to. And he goes, do you have a model? And my face just turned red and I just started sweating. And I was just like, holy shit, I've been in this business for 10 years and I have no clue about how to pull levers and how to really understand what is even going on within my business. And so I developed a model. And once I developed that future projection model and then started installing my live I was really able to start to understand what's happening. Hey, I hit this amount of revenue. I obviously need two more cooks or I need one more sous chef. Or hey, I lost this amount of revenue. We need to get rid of some people, right? It's all there for you. So that was a really, really, really big step for us as well. What are your goals for the next 12 months? Next 12 months, man, we're getting a virtual kitchen assistant, which is actually a product of our full-time chef company that we've got going. We're really trying to push that, get that off the ground. I'm not going to be rushing it by any means, but we've already shot 60 courses, uh, which I'm really stoked on. We've got a lot of live stuff coming up. I'm going to start doing a lot of great interviews with a lot of amazing people, just like you're doing, just to continue to collect information for people. And, you know, I hope to help about two entrepreneurs a month over the next 12 months, you know, really partner up with them. We've had some amazing conversations already and seen some really great growth with, like I said, the simple things. So I'm having a lot of fun with that, man. And I hope to continue to grow that. And I hope to add one more venue to my catering business here in San Diego. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? I would say right now, though people are terrified and it's been a tough year and a half, I think right now is probably the greatest time in the history of restaurants to be in food and beverage, to be honest, in the history of food and beverage. You can't think of an industry that's changing faster. I can't remember the amount of opportunity being available, right? People are shutting down. People are opening. There's the new digital chef idea, right? Whether you can do online courses or online cooking classes or just do a Facebook Live that people start to come in and become an influencer. I mean, this new digital chef age is just absolutely beautiful, right? And I think we really need to embrace it because I truly believe that now is a great time to be in the industry. And I'm still baffled that we cook in 200 pans. I'm still baffled that we serve in chafing dishes. 
everything that is in front of us has changed over the last hundred years, but how we eat and serve food. And I think you're going to see big changes in the next decade. I don't know if that's advice or not, but it's more like get involved, jump in, be a part of this digital age, have fun with it. You know, think outside the box as a chef for the first time. Just don't think about your sandwich place or your simple burger joint within a bar or something. And of course, that can be great. And if that's what you want to do, do it. But think about how you can get more food to people. Think about how you can get your kitchen running 24 hours and get more food production out of that one space. Like I said, I think it's a really, really great time to be in the industry. And I'm really looking forward to see the transition over the next decade. That's Nick Broom. To learn more about Nick and to learn more from Nick, visit FullTimeChef.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.